0: Please stand by. Reload here. (coughs) All right, there we go. All right. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining myself, Justin James Garcia, and Gary Wayne for the sixth episode of Ask Me Anything with Gary Wayne, author of The Genesis Six Conspiracy. Gary, are you there?
1: I am, and so happy to be back and uh, do our first live uh, video streaming. We've I've only done audio with you before, but I'm back at home and I have uh, my camera going and very much looking forward to the show tonight.
0: Yes, and as everyone just heard, we are going to surprise everyone, and we're going to be on video tonight. So hello, and thank you for joining us. So we are going to take 14 questions from a list that has been pre-made by people that have submitted their questions, and then if we have the opportunity, we're going to go into questions from the live chat. So we thank you for joining us again. Uh, Please, if you have any questions you'd like answered in a future episode, please email us at sacredwordpublishingllc at gmail.com. That's sacredwordpublishingllc at gmail.com. And please put the subject line, AMAs with Gary, and we'll know that that question is for Gary. Uh, But other than that, we'll just get started with a quick prayer. Uh, It seems like the viewers are flooding in pretty quickly, so... We'll give every time a quick moment to join in while we just uh, pray that, Father Yah, we just lift you up. We thank you so much for this time, for this opportunity to join together with people who haven't had the opportunity to seek out all of the answers to the questions that they may have. And we thank you so much for anointing our brother Gary to be able to go on the search for those questions answers and and we thank you for the revelations that you have provided we know all wisdom comes from you and all truth is is you you are the truth and you are the way and you are the life father and you've given a sacrifice for us that we could receive eternal life so we praise you and we thank you father for you are the victorious one you are valiant and you have overcome all temptation all evil you've you're not far from us but you've come into the flesh and suffered that death. You've suffered torment that many of us can't comprehend, but you've done that and you've defeated that. You've defeated death even and given us that promise and we thank you so much, Father. We just ask that you would unite us as one body in this end times generation to be able to join together in love and peace and hope. To be able to spread that hope with those people that are around us, Father. So as our hearts reach out for answers to questions that we have while we're studying. We pray that we'll always have a mind to be able to reach out to those people who don't have the same hope and the joy that you provide, Father. We just ask that you would be with us in this time and be with Gary specifically as he uh, receives this pop quiz. We just praise you. We thank you for all things. In the name of the Messiah, amen. 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 All right, uh, Gary, before we get started, would you like to let everyone know where they can get a copy of Genesis 6 Conspiracy and how they might be able to get a hold of you?
1: Yeah, if you're looking to get a hold of me or get a signed copy of the Genesis 6 Conspiracy, go to my website, which is Genesis 6 conspiracycom That's Genesis 6 with the number 6, conspiracy.com. And on the website, I have a generous excerpt on all 98 chapters, so you'll get a good feel for the book. I also have some interviews up if you want to see some other interviews, and you can also email me through the website uh, and ask me any questions or if I uh, have some documents that I mentioned on the show tonight uh, or other ones I've mentioned in the past that you want, get a hold of me through the website. And you can also connect through the website over to amazon.com or amazon.ca and barnesandnoble.com and to the Kindle format. So lots of ways to get uh, a hold of my book. That's rather easy through the, the website. And or if you want to support your local bookstore uh, and they don't have it on the shelf. It's distributed by Bookmasters, so they can order it in for you and probably get it in within a week for you, and you can support your local bookstore. So lots of ways to get a hold of the book. And uh, you can also get a hold of me through Facebook under Gary Wayne and through Twitter at wayne 63 at wayne 63
0: Excellent. Sounds awesome, sir. Are you ready to get started, sir? I am. All right. So we'll move on to question number one. And this comes from Jason. He asks, when any scripture refers to a day or a year, how does one know if it's an actual 24-hour day or that a day is 1,000 years or 365,000 yeah. days?
1: Yeah, it's a very, very good question. And if one is going to understand the context and particularly the context and application for prophecy, you kind of need to get it straight as to how to discern what uh, Jason is asking here. So I guess I'll quickly start with where does the thousand year comes from? And that's, you know, a bit of an allegory in terms of somebody that is alpha omega and as Psalms 90 and second Peter uh, to talk about, it's like, you know, a day for somebody who is alpha omega is like a thousand years. So we don't know whether that's a literal thousand years because it's uh, a metaphor, but it is uh, a day. It's just a, a, you know, a flash of time for, for God and almost you know, an eternity for us because you know we don't live past 120 years. So uh, we want to be careful in terms of that application. Uh, and uh, we also want to be careful with applying, uh, how long a day is in prophecy. So what I tend to do is is I like to uh, understand things literally. And when you get an allegory like a day comes up in prophecy as in Daniel 9:27 where it's talking about days and weeks and all part of that same sort of metaphor, you want to look for other scripture, that is going to define what that actually means. And so in Daniel 9.27, essentially what where the first application of this scripture comes up with is you have uh, the years that are set aside of uh, 50 weeks of years or 49 weeks of years, and then you have the last seven, and a week of year is seven years. And we understand that this is a year based on the number of years that it's outlining in Daniel 9.27 and then the last seven years that's outlined also in Daniel 9.27, also in Daniel 12, in in, um, another book of Daniel as well. But it's divided into two halves, which is 1,260 days uh, when the abomination happens. So we know that that from a hebrew perspective is half a year so 360 days as you know with a 30-day lunar calendar that they used um, that would be 12 months and 30 days based on that that scenario and then they have uh, within the old testament law feasts and regulations and things on how to make up for those days um, so that they don't get out of track with the sequence of the of, of the year so when we're looking at that, then what we understand is whether or not we're seeing a day in uh, Daniel, which also could be times as well. You have times and you have days, and it all means the same thing as you take that back to Hebrew. And so we can also roll that over into the New Testament when it gets into Revelation. And uh, it's talking about the length of the time in, in Daniel uh, 13, or I mean, in Revelation 13 and uh, also in Revelation 12, you've got uh, the reign of Antichrist, and you also have the time that God is going to protect those who flee Judea at the time of the abomination uh, talked about in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and referenced specifically by those Gospels back to Daniel, which is the midpoint. So I'm just giving a whole bunch of different uh, scenarios here where when it's counting out a day. In prophecy it's there's a general rule of thumb to use a year based on that but you also want to understand that when you use an application whether it's a definition or it's an allegory it has to be consistent with the narrative that it's in so if it doesn't fit in that narrative uh, then you have to go through and say well is that really prophetic and or if you're using a translation out of Greek or Hebrew, to and they'll have two or three, four or five different meanings for a particular word. Again, you have to select that meaning for the narrative and select it for what other passages in the Bible do because you will get support from other passages throughout the Bible. So when you look at, in the Old Testament, you get the day of the Lord. And so... That is a classic case now where you're outside of Daniel and Revelation specifically where it's talking about uh, years. And I think it's both when it comes to the day of the Lord. I think there's one day when Jesus comes for Armageddon after the day of the Lord. But I also think there's a year of judgment bowls that are going to be falling out because this is the wrath of God uh and the day of the lord is kind of the at the end is the ultimate and that's when jesus comes back so i think we can look at that as a as a as as a day and a year so you can have a couple of compound meetings as long as it's consistent with the narrative and consistent with other prophecies because typically the bible has many layers to it so the digger you deep the more understanding that you're going to get And you also get in this end time event in the last three and a half years but before Uh, armageddon you also get as luke 4 talks about and also in in isaiah i think it's 59 or 60 it is uh, the day or the year of the lord's favor um, which is also part of the days of the lord that luke likes to talk about in terms of multiple days of jesus coming as opposed to one day that mark and luke talk about again in addition to what matthew talks about so look for mark and looked to add a few more details but use matthew as the base sort of uh chronology and end time signs and warning that jesus gives but now you have an understanding that you have days of jesus coming you've got a rapture event you've got a second exodus event uh that's going to include the year of the lord's favor and you have the day of the lord and i think you can you can apply a year in almost all of those in all of those areas and also understand that there's going to be one final day uh, at the end, which you know is that is, is Armageddon, but there's that whole year that leads up to it. So kind of a long answer, but I just wanted to, to sort of connect as many dots on that so that people would have an understanding as to where I'm coming from when I'm talking about how to apply a day.
0: All right. Well, we appreciate your awesome answer and thorough answer as always. Uh, we have one comment from the chat that I just wanted to read out from Harriet. She says, tell Gary that he's awesome. So. <laughs> Gary, you're awesome. Well,
1: thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> and we'll move on to the second question. This is but one. now I'm so embarrassed I'm going to be stumbling over my answers. So I'll have to, I'll have to get that out of my mind and just The focus. pressure is on. <laughs> All
0: right, the second question comes from Jason, and he says, How do we know Israel is now a nation when only two of the 12 tribes occupy the land? And Scripture yeah. refers to being... Peace in the land when it is restored as a nation, yeah. and there has been constant war since 1948.
1: Yeah, certainly two or three tribes, depending on how you want to understand uh, the Southern Kingdom, which is uh, Judah, as opposed to the Northern Kingdom of the other ten tribes. And so you've got, you know, two tribes plus the tribe of Levi. So, um, so it's a it's it's a very very good question, and that's why uh, I think I'll preface the answer. Uh, to this question is, is why I like to go back to those rules that I like to have in prophecy where you need to include all the relevant passages and see how they fit together. And so when we look at Ezekiel 38 and 39, uh, you have uh, Israel being talked about uh, you know in and around Jerusalem and on the mountains and this is the time of the Gog war which is I think happens towards the midpoint of the last seven years as reflected in Revelation 9 which is the same war as the Gog war and Joel 1 and 2 with Joel 3 and 4 moving into the Armageddon war and so when we look at that then uh, are we looking at all of Israel to be part of uh, what happens in the end time or is it just the southern kingdom of judah which is visible judah today because the 10 tribes of the northern kingdom were dispersed by assyria in about 721 bc and lost to the four corners of the earth in all of the nations around the world now they are going to awaken in the end time they're going to be called by name and they're going to remember who they are they're going to go back to the lord they're going to go back to the old testament law they're not saved yet by uh, jesus until second exodus when he comes for them to save them and prepare them uh, and the church uh, as the bride for uh, the end time but they will awaken so if we go back to the holy covenant that's talked about in the old testament and particularly in Deuteronomy this is prophesied that if they don't uphold the covenant that they'll have they'll suffer the curses of the covenant and so humankind's destiny as it is being worked out through the nation of Israel is not being worked out through the blessings of the covenant because they violated the covenant and israel was on the north was dispersed and then later judah was dispersed because they also violated the covenant but they remain visible and in the holy covenant it's prophesied that in the end time he will regather them they will remember who they are and they will come back to the lord and they'll be led by jesus in second exodus not that part's not in deuteronomy 2 but you get that with other verses throughout the bible so when does that happen that's around what i was talking about earlier with the year of the lord's favor right when jesus is going to free the prisoners as in micah and they're going to have the have their king and their lord jesus as the one that's leading them in in this exodus so this is going to happen in the last three and a half years and after the midpoint and after the Gog war so i don't think that we're looking for all of israel uh is my point on this for Uh, how do we know this is the end time? And and just before I get into that in terms of them as part of the end time or this verse or Israel being in Israel today, I'll back up with what I'm saying in terms of this is only going to be the southern kingdom that's going to be referred to when we start to bring in the Daniel prophecies that I was talking about in Daniel 9, Daniel uh, 10, Daniel 11, Daniel 12. It's only talking about Judah, the southern kingdom back around in, in the land of the covenant at the time of the abomination and just before that, the first three and a half years where they're going to be able to do the sacrifice on a wing of the covenant. And then I also look at the New Testament to back that up. So again, when Jesus is talking to the southern kingdom, Judah, even though the message is for Israel and Christians as well, to the elect, which is also the Christians and as it's defined in Strong's as those who are saved by Jesus and follow, followers, followers of Jesus. So the whole bride is he's talking to, not just one portion is what uh, a lot of people portray. Um, I have a document on that if people want it, by the way. Um, and so when we're talking, when he's, when Jesus is talking to the disciples who are all of the Southern kingdom, uh, he is talking about the signs of his second coming. And at the midpoint of those signs is the abomination. And then comes another tribulation. Um, and also followed by descriptions of his of his coming with the, with the sign in the sky and setting out the elect. Uh, the angels to to collect the elect so this is when it references back to daniel so this is judah and we get that backed up in mark and in luke and then also in revelation 12 again which is at the end towards the end end of the trumpets and when there's going to be a war in heaven and it's talking about israel and uh they are going to flee from the dragon who is trying to wipe them from the face of the earth who has been sent down to the earth with all of the rest of the angels along with antichrist who's in power for the last three and a half years and they're going to be basically protected for essentially three and a half years as it counts out the days a touch longer Um, again that's going to match up with uh what you have in daniel but what's relevant about that is that it's the people of judea in the four gospels of matthew mark and and luke are the three gospels that are describing this fleeing that happens at the abomination so clearly it's judah that to me it's it's judah in the land of the covenant so that's what we should be looking for now when we talk about how do we know that this is the time or the, the people that are there now are uh the people of the of the end time well, again, you have to match it up with more prophecy and and, and more passages in the Bible to, to, to be sure of that. And again, Jesus talks about the fig tree generation. Uh, again, in the same set of signs as he's talking about and at the end of the signs. And the fig tree generation is either 40 years, as it's talked about as the length of a king, or 70 years, uh, as it's talked about, again, I, I believe in the Psalms, and 120 years in Genesis. So depends on when that clock starts to kick as to if this is the last generation and i think it is the fig tree generation uh when that kicked off so if it was 1947 which is the first declaration and the battle happens in 48 for their freedom you use 70 or 120 years because we're past a year a reign of a king for 40 years and that puts you you know somewhere between using 7 years at 2017 for the messianic period is what the Jew- Jewish people would describe it as or is it 1967 for Jerusalem which i think it is and i'll explain that in a second um which would give you account of uh you know if it's 70 years up to 2037 but if it's another you know 50 years beyond that then because it's 120 year generation that's what we don't know what we do know is it's likely the fig tree generation because we have judah there and jesus uh, as recorded by matthew is the one who curses the fig tree and in bible prophecy the southern kingdom is the fig tree of the garden and the vine is the lost tribes of Israel. So again, when you're looking at prophecy, apply the allegories of those prophecy to those people. Just as when you're applying prophecy uh, in the Old Testament, if it says Judah, apply that to the southern kingdom. If it says Israel, be careful because it could mean all the tribes of Israel, but typically it's going to be the northern kingdom as with when it says jacob it's going to be the northern people so again that's typically how you're going to to apply it so i think that we are in the fig tree generation and i think that uh, jesus used the fig tree for two reasons one he cursed the fig tree and then when you see the fig tree bloom he's referencing back what he taught and that Judah is called the fig tree in prophecy. And I would look for Jerusalem because that's where the sacrifice is going to take place. That's the holy city from eternity, uh, before however long that is. And it is the city where the temple is, and Israel or Judah did not take the uh city of Jerusalem until 1967. So uh, that's how I would define how you're going to apply prophecy for who Israel is, who Judah is, and how we can now assign that to the end time and start matching up all of the other prophecies. And I think when you do that, whichever prophecy that you now start looking at, you'll understand that when it mentions Judah in the end time, it is different for end time prophecy than it is for Israel. That's because they have two different destinies as set out in, in, in the Holy Covenant. But soon Israel will start awakening.
0: Amen. We really appreciate your thorough answer once again. We'll go ahead and move on to the next question. And this comes from Switch. He says, are the emerald tablets in relation to biblical narrative flood Atlantis, Egypt, fallen angels, since you mentioned Atlantis?
1: Um, if I understand that question correctly, I, I think what, the, what, what Switch is asking is what the Emerald Tablet essentially discusses. Is that a parallel narrative or uh, the same narrative as what Genesis talks about? Um, so let's talk about the Emerald Tablet first, and then I'll show uh, some correlations here. The Emerald Tablet not only has, you know, a record of everything that was, but also everything that is to be, according to the mystical aspects that uh, I've not seen proven that people have been able to access. But maybe that happens in the end time as well. That um, it's an ancient piece of technology that, you know, is, has a starhouse of knowledge, and they're similar to what we would know as a computer. It also has the events that. Happened in the first time, or in Zeptepi, uh, or in the Golden Age, depending on however you want to talk about that. And so, in that context, uh, there's some some similarities. And the Ebral Tablet is also known as a bank of knowledge, as I talked about, and it's used in the same term as the Shatia. It's used in the same term and, and understanding as the archives of the Masons and anything that's got to do with ancient knowledge whether or not it's the pearls of wisdom whether or not it is the uh, 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 I'm, I'm trying to think i think it's the golden apples out of greek uh, mythology uh, and there's so many different names around the secular and polytheist world for the same sort of bank of knowledge and history um, so uh, but i think The question specifically is for, is it telling the same story as Genesis? Um, I would say yes and no. I would say it it may be telling a version of Genesis, or it may be telling a polytheist uh, version of what happened before the flood that has survived survived time, and that is through a polytheist lens. So it, it is telling and talking about the same events, but with a completely different bias if i can put it that way and in this case a polytheist bias so you're going to get a time of of a, of a flood in all of the ancient accounts and in, a, in the atlantean account in particular and you're going to have uh, a set of events that leads up to the flood that's caused by the angels or the gods depending on the lens again that you're looking through on that and you're going to have heroes or titans as atlas is the king of atlantis and one of ten and it's called both a titan and a hero and he would be a nephilim and he's created in the and they're, they're created in the same way that the nephilim in genesis 6 1 through 4 is created Th- Poseidon is brother of Zeus, and uh, he meets with uh, a human female some accounts and i, I think i have Pettis, takes on the same sort of flavor in some of accounts in these versions and it's either climbing or clato or other human females where poseidon or iapetus is going to mate with and create these demigod titan hero kings just as the same way you have uh happening with the sons of god or the angels and i think the watcher angels and the seraphim angels um do so in Genesis 6 and uh, go to human females and create these these demigods. So, I think it's a parallel account is what I think it is, a uh, surviving account of antediluvian nations and we have all of these all around uh, the world that tell a similar story, but they have a polytheist slant to it all the time because they're worshipping a pantheon of gods. But all of them refer to the same type of demigods and you know, uh, I think the, the best example would be the Epic of Gilgamesh, um, where it talks about Utnapishtim and or Zudra as being uh, the Sumerian Noah and what they would say the Genesis story is based on. Well, from the macro details, they look directionally the same, but when you get into the minutia and the details of it, it's a completely different story about the same events and the reason why i say that is is because not only is gilgamesh one-third human and two-thirds uh god as he's as described as as is uh, uh or enkidu depending which transliteration you're going to use out of which language for the name uh that is uh, created also after the flood in in a second incursion by the looks of it uh, from that end of the story um to offset the uh evilness of gilgamesh well as you move on into the epic of gilgamesh you move into the flood story which has upmatishnum in it and he's an archetypical anunnaki demigod and so is his family they're all two-thirds god and one-third human and these are the ones that are selected to survive the flood so now you have a, an arc survival story and you have a second incursion uh, which again is not unusual uh you have a nephilim or a god or angel second incursion, which isn't unusual around the world to have both. And so uh, I lean towards a second incursion as my most favored position, uh, as opposed to giants actually surviving the flood. But the thing is, is we're not really told exactly how the Raphaim show up after the flood. They're called Nephilim before the flood, uh, but Raphaim after the flood. And so there's a distinction there. And I think that's the second incursion part. But you could also make an argument that Raphaim is, is a branch of the Nephilim that survived the flood, right? A particular uh, type of Nephilim. So whichever way you want to go on it. But I know I'm, I'm probably going on a little bit too much on detail and comparatives to the Emerald Tablet. But if you understand that the pantheons were all set up the same way and they had the same root religion... Uh, And that they're telling the same story from a polytheist lens then you'll understand that it is either Based on Genesis and corrupted after the flood or it's a parallel account before the flood But either way they're talking about the same events, but they're using a different lens based on one God or multiple gods
0: Wow, I'm really amazed that from a little question like that you still have so much to share (laughs) we have Another very short question, and I'm not sure how much information you have on this, but <laughs> this is definitely the first time I've I've really even thought about this. Now, Stephen says, "Does anyone know Jesus' last name?"
1: Well, he, you know, it's it's not uncommon for angels and beings to perhaps have several names. Um. But there's also one name that would be typically assigned to him from God, um, and I think that's what's going on in in this case. So, I mean, we get different words for for Jesus's name, whether it's Emmanuel or Jesus or Yeshua. Although I guess there's uh, they're all etymology sort of going back in the same direction. And he's also called the Word of God. And in fact, in Revelation 19, it's got his name as the Word of God on there. But he has another name yet, um, and th- I think it's that hidden one, and it's the one that no one knows except for Jesus, and that's Revelation nineteen thirteen. So, um, and I think if somebody did were able to get a hold of the name that God provided it, or Jesus provided it, or somebody provided it, um, we wouldn't be able to pronounce it, and we wouldn't understand it. So, I'm not so sure it would be even helpful to know that name that's uh, hidden only known by jesus uh, because we don't have the omnipotent alpha omega intelligence that jesus and god have so um, does he have a second name Um, that could also mean does he have a name that would be uh, uh like what we have today a first name and a last name well typically uh there are family names in 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 israel um although a lot of times are just named the son of a certain person so um but there are certain family names and family bloodlines so i'm not sure whether the question is, is 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 asking that but as we go back with uh the genealogy i mean you know there's a long genealogy as where jesus would come from 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 patriarchs but if he did have the last name it would be the the last name of joseph but i'm i have to admit i i'd don't think I've ever come across everything that said what Joseph's last name was. But I, I, if somebody in the chat room knows that, maybe let us know, because I, I certainly don't know that name.
0: Yes, uh, neither do I. Maybe the Messiah, Son of God? <laughs> I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not sure. But that was a great question. First time I've really thought about it. But like you were saying about the the interpretation that you first had being the last name as in the name that he's going to have when he comes back, it definitely does say that no man knows that name. And what's really interesting is that even all of the chosen, all of the elect, you know, he's going to give them a white stone with a name on it that no man yes. knows. So we don't even know our right. own names. God willing, yes. we'll, we'll be there and we'll have a new name with him and then we'll learn. That would be amazing. I just, Oh, that'll be the day. <laughs> All right, so our next question is is there such a thing as little fairies or has there ever been and if so could God have created them?
1: Well, God wouldn't have created them, I don't think otherwise, we would be given um that account I think in 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 the Bible. What we do know, and I'll I'll, I'll make a link back to the Bible um at the end of my answer here what we do know is about the little people uh, and fairy fairies are part of a four section classification of these types of beings and for people who aren't maybe familiar with it let me just sort of quickly run through them is that you have the ones who come from other planets that rebelled and have lucifer as meaning as as a leader so these are obviously the fallen angels with satan as as the chief fairy and then they have the offspring of these uh, fairies, which are the earthborn ones, and as it comes down with the Tuatha Danu or the Tuatha de Danan or the tribe of Danu, or several different names, and of course the Irish uh, Shea, which is another name for the Tuatha de Danan out of Ireland, um, they're known as the Fairy people, and uh, they were also known as giants both before and after the flood and so these are again sort of the nephilim so again we're going through the same sort of understanding and polytheism that that uh, that uh, the bible talks about and then you have the next class which is the shades uh, also known as shay as well s-i-d-h-e-s it's also a, a portal another word for a portal. Uh, which is closely associated with these ghost-like creatures, these banshees. But these are the bodiless spirits of the earth-born demigods. And then you have the elementals, which is the fourth classification, which were beings that were created by either the fallen angels or crossbred with other types of uh, humans and 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 uh, beings on the earth to create these things and i'll cover that off in a second where i'm coming from with that and they're divided into three other groups you have the ugly ones which are the gnomes and the goblins you and uh, the trolls and ones like that you have the mischievous ones like uh, the leprechauns and then you have the good-looking ones and so you've got these three different classifications and this is a constant worldwide where we get these accounts in southeast asia in australia in uh, uh, asia in africa and south america and all throughout the north american indians it's like the giants showing up in all cultures and nations it's like the pyramids being on all continents and i expect we'll find them on antarctica if we can ever actually either melt the caps or or, uh, do uh, some sort of excavation there i think we'll they will find pyramids there as well so this is one of those common things of world history that is a significant part of polytheism and secret societies and they they believe in that that these were actually real people and in those accounts typically they're created by the gods just as the nephilim were and in most applications through sexual copulation so i'm not sure how they created little ones From that, unless there's a third part in there or they did DNA manipulation. But it doesn't matter which pantheon that you go to, it's the gods that are creating these little people. And so the gnomes, for example, would look after the genealogies and the knowledge and the technology that was occurring in uh, the antediluvian world. And in that classification, you have one classification that's actually called the Grays. And I actually put descriptions of this in the book and they they come through fairy dolmens or fairy mounds or portals or shays with their flying machines and they kidnap people and do experimentation on it if you didn't know it was a fairy abduction by the description that's provided you think it was a gray alien uh, abduction and they would look just like them so again if there's anything to the fairy mythos and if anything to the alien mythos with the greys uh, they would come out of those, that little people classification. Again, somehow they would have either been recreated after the flood or somehow they survived the flood with their technology or going through these portals, which is, a, you know, again, portals and dimensions are a significant part of the Nephilim mythos uh, in polytheism and same with the uh, fairy mythos. So it's, it's all sort of part and parcel on that. So now, how do we know that there's anything to this other than you get all of these polytheist accounts? Well, when we go to the Bible, um, we get a description of the hierarchy, and you know, in, in verses like in, in Ephesians, for example, and you're going to get powers, and you're going to get. Uh, uh, Archangels, and you're going to get uh, uh, all of these different types of descriptions of different kinds of beings. And one of them is uh, rudiments, as it's described in the King James Version Bible and or elementals or as they're described in other translations. And that's interesting. And so if you take rudiment back to Greek, it actually says part of the, an elemental type of being. And it could also mean elements of the universe, but there's two different applications. So when you're applying it in the Bible, you have to apply it so it means uh, what the narrative is saying and doesn't contradict with the narrative. So when it's talking about these different angels and beings, when it's talking about archangels or whatever, and it's using the word rudiments, it's talking about a classification of angel. So again, I think there's more than just one kind of angel that uh, had incursions against uh, the laws of, uh, you know, to, to violate the laws of creation and had sex or did other things to violate the laws of creation, create other beings, and that's why we have all of these different crazy type of beings in prehistory. And so, I would suggest that if you were to make a, a legal, uh, sort of a literal legal biblical argument that if there is accuracy to these little people, would come out of the elemental classification of the angelic realm, and they looked similar to them, but they weren't created with the same type of size and nature that that the Nephilim were created. I think likely though, it's more the DNA sort of manipulation that was going on with these little people because they were created smaller. And we see all of this reflected in a lot of literature so that each of these types of individuals had a specific sort of assignment and role in the overall organizational structure of these gods and of the of the giants and just as i talked about the gnomes having aspects of uh guarding knowledge and technology you have like let's say in the lord of rings you have hobbits and you have um i'm trying to think of the uh, the uh, the uh, another little one that are actually miners and make weapons and they live in the mountains um it slips me uh, dwarves uh, is what they are and then you have the elves and there's two different sizes of elves in polytheism one sort of a giant noble elf as which is a an allegory for the nephilim in terms of their descriptions and they're shown as these royal kings in lord of the rings and then you have these ugly little elves that are more part of the gnome and ugly classification like the ones that are part of santa claus and work on toys but the point of the matter is, is all of these little people had specific roles and were created to do certain things, and so it was part of that whole sort of uh, anti-deluvian uh, organizational structure. So we don't have something that's a smoking gun verse in the Bible to say that they existed, but there's definitely a, a connection to it. And when you get into polytheism, when they look at elementals and define that that actually again gets into a lower class as it's as it's described and defined a lower class of a demigod kind of being um, but right at the bottom level so again that's why they would be the serving class of the demigods so best way i can answer that i wouldn't rule it out um, but we want to be very careful as to who they are and how we understand who they are if they actually do exist and do be prepared for that uh, in the end time, because I think they're going to be disguised as part of the alien deception.
0: Definitely, I could see how that would come about. Uh, thank you again for that thorough answer. Now we'll move on to the next question that comes from Susan. Uh, it is eight forty-six, so we'll get through maybe one or two more questions, then we'll take a quick break, and you can get some water while we uh, do a couple advertisements or announcements. Uh, the next question comes from Susan, and it says, Gary, do you know about the Ophanim? Not sure.
1: Ophanim. Ophanim. Yeah. Yes. yeah. It uh, was a mystery that eluded uh, me for a while. Um, and again, it's why I like to dig as deep as you can when you get into into the Bible. So... What Susan is talking about is an Enoch in chapter 61 and 71, where it talks about the angels that surround God. And, you know, I think most people are familiar with the Cherubim and most people might be familiar with the Seraphim. Um, And these are two of the ones that are listed. The other one is the Ophanim. Ophanim. I mean, you could use an I-M as a long i, I in there as in Nephilim or Seraphim or I, I usually just use a short eye on it just so that people, in case they're thinking I'm talking about two different uh, types of beings. And so I had no idea who these Ophanim were. And uh, it eluded it me. But, you know, there was something hit me one time as I was looking at Ezekiel 1 and Ezekiel 2. And it caused me to dig a little deeper. And in there it has the cherubim. And the four living beasts, uh, they're called trubim in uh, in Ezekiel ten, and, and four living creatures in um, Ezekiel one. And uh, what struck me as odd is is what they looked like. And in um, Ezekiel one, there's four faces on the on this living creature that is commonly associated as being trubim, and one had the face of a man and. One had a face of an ox and one of an eagle and a lion. But in Ezekiel 10, it says there is the face of a man, uh, a face of an eagle, a lion, and a cherubim. Well, why would one have a face of an ox and one have a face of a cherubim? Is that a corruption? Is that a mistranslation? And I can't, couldn't establish it as a corruption or a uh, mistranslation. So I thought this is this is very odd. And then I started to look at it closer, and it what it talks about with the trubum is is that they are either above the wheels, under the wheels, um, in the wheels, but separated from the wheels of the throne of God as it's being, or the chariot of God, however you want to do it with the throne of God as it's being envisioned in in Ezekiel's vision. And so I looked up that word saying, well, what are these wheels that the cherubim are part of? And is there actually a distinction of cherubim here? Is there two different orders of cherubim or what's going on here? Or two different kinds of beings. So if you take the word wheel back to Hebrew, it is actually H212, which is ofan, uh, as it's transliterated, uh, O-P-H-A-N, just as it's spelled O-P-H-A-N-N-I-N in First Enoch in the English translation, at least that I have. And so you put the male plural on, which is I-M, uh, to make it a male plural and or for ones, which really kind of means the same thing, so that you have like seraphim, you have the uh, fiery serpent ones and, and the male and uh, the nephilim would be the fallen ones right um, so now you have the ophanim which where i think that name comes from in ezekiel is is they've applied that as a type of angelic order and a third classification that we're not given an english translation for in the bible but we do get the word ophan and ophanim and i think that this could be uh, as i was talking about likely a different order of trubum or a different classification that is very very similar but they are the ones that are operating the wheels for the throne of God. And so you have to be a little bit careful though because if you take wheel back in some applications in the Bible, it doesn't go back to Ofan. It actually goes back to Gilgal. So Uh, And even within Ezekiel 10, that will happen is a couple of the worlds will go back to Gelgal. But again, look at what it's talking about in terms of these living creatures. So I think the Ophanim are the ones that have whatever a head of a Cherubim is. That may be uh, one of the heads having four heads which is part of a distinction of the Ophanim, which I still think is very similar to the Cherubim. So I'm it as a distinctive order of Cherubim.
0: Very, very interesting. Uh, Definitely that's something that catches me off guard when I'm reading through the description. It's just so difficult to understand that there really are these creatures out here, these cherubim, it's pretty amazing. but with that said we'll move on to the next question and this also has to do with uh mythical creatures which i feel like is actually a majority of your questions people want to ask you about the history (laughs) of of all of these ancient uh beings from before the flood and maybe some after the flood but vahid asks did the giants mate with regular sized women or did they find any way to impregnate the natural sized human? Or did they have to basically wait for a female giant to be born in order to reproduce?
1: Yeah, I think um, they may have tried. I mean, when we we talked about the original Nephilim, they'd be bigger than the descriptions of the Raphaim after the flood. But either way, you get into the case is, you know, let's say, and just so people know what we're talking about in terms of size, If you're talking about after the flood, you have Goliath, who is six cubits and a span, and a cubit typically is 18 inches as a common cubit, or 21 inches close to as a royal cubit. And I think Goliath was a king so of Gath, just as uh, there were four other kings of the Philistine Pentapolis described in that narrative, and David picked up five smooth stones i think he was going to kill all five kings that day if he had to but he only needed to kill the one and so goliath in that case would be somewhere nine feet nine inches to uh, 11 feet three inches uh, depending on which way you're going to define cubit and so they were also known to be uh in comparison to humans they were known to be a two to one height to width ratio uh, humans typically on average are three to one so they would be significantly wider and stockier so these were muscular strong huge individuals so as you try, start to sort of start to proportion that down to the size that would do the act of uh, creating uh, offspring with human females you could probably make a case that the ones after the flood may have been able to copulate with human females um, uh, and uh, physically get that done it's to me that's a judgment call Um, but before the flood when they are somewhere between 20 and 50 feet tall or 40 feet tall it would be the general conclusion although Enoch talks about an L um, and in the other translation, because there's two different translations that Enoch comes out of, is Aramaic and Giyas. We don't have an original Hebrew manuscript, so which is why it's, you have to be a little bit careful sometimes with, with, with these ones where we don't have the original Hebrew manuscript. Uh, in, in the whole manuscript, there are some pieces of, of, of Enoch. Um, but typically, um, if that was a cubit, that would make them 450 feet tall and even taller if it was a royal cubit. Uh, which would now takes it right out of the possibility. I don't think they're that big. We just don't know how big an L was. Um, So, and I think that word should be L as as opposed to cubit in in the translation. But again, we don't have the original Hebrew. So if they're 20 to 40 feet tall, I don't think that uh, human females are going to survive a sexual act with it being that big, period. So how did that happen then? And again, possibly, it, 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 you know, you have the same issue after the flood. Uh, Og would have been, again, using the same uh, dimensions provided with the bed and knocking that off a bit on, on, on for the length. He would have been somewhere between 14 to 15 feet tall. So, I mean, we're really starting to get big. Uh, so what we do have is uh, reliefs in antiquity that has the gods and demigods actually doing... Um, a ritual of pouring semen into human females so i think that's the transition likely and they did that so that they could recreate more female offspring that would now be hybrids they would be smaller than the raphaim or the nephilim before the flood and or they would be Uh, bigger than human females and would be able to do that And over subsequent generations. um, That's how they were, you know, they were able to create the mid-range ones to be able to do that. And I would also suggest, though, that there's a possibility, though, that there were both, if there's a second incursion after the flood and before the flood, that there could have been female Nephilim and Rephaim born as well. We're just not given that account specifically, uh, but that you know I don't think we should rule out that you couldn't have had female Nephilim born and female Raphaim born on, on a second incursion. Or again, if you're more uh, inclined to believe in them surviving the flood, then uh, then they would come from the Nephilim. So that's that's another possibility. And when we get into Genesis 36, what's really interesting with Seir, who is a horim and seer goes back to uh, satir uh interesting root word for it as part of a goat god as we understand that in isaiah 13 and isaiah 34 he has a daughter named timna and we're not told that that is a a daughter that comes from a female human we're just told it's a daughter so timna could be pure bed horim which is raphaim and so Timna then marries Eliphaz to create the Amalekite nation, even though we have the Amalekim who show up as giants in Genesis 14 and predates that. So I think that's another possibility. So hopefully I've covered off all of the possible ways. But we're just not told which way it happens.
0: Well, we definitely covered quite a bit and got through a lot of questions already. Uh, I'm excited to get back from the break and to go ahead and get through as many more questions from the list, and then hopefully we'll have some time at the end of the show for everyone's live questions. Uh, So we'll start the speed round later on, but before we get to the next hour, I want to go ahead and give you a, a quick time to take a break. So we'll go ahead and move to this awesome video that our brother Martin put together. Of a conference that we're having where Gary Wayne is going to be joining us. So please uh, enjoy. Sacred Word Revealed comes to Atlanta, Georgia on March 27th through 29th, 2020. Purposed to reveal end times mysteries, to prepare the final generation, we must dawn. The Full Armor of God.
1: Featuring Zen Garcia,
0: Gary Wayne, Stephen and Yana Ben Noon, Dr. Stephen Pigeon, Justin James Garcia, Dr. Joy Pugh, Rob Skiba. Laurel Austin. Buy your tickets now at sacredwordrevealed.com. All right. Thank you, everybody, for joining us again for this sixth episode of AMAs with Gary Wayne. And, yes, Gary is going to be joining us for the conference in Atlanta, Georgia. Next year, we're so excited, and we hope that you'll be able to join us with all of these fantastic speakers. And, you know, Gary doesn't get out a lot too many conferences, so we feel very special to have him joining us. And we know that, you know, we're going to be speaking on some amazing topics regarding the end times. And I feel like with everyone there, we're just going to have a great time of Fellowship, and we hope that you'll be able to join us. Uh, For the next announcement, I just want to remind everybody that every Saturday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, we do have our Digital Readers Club, and this month we're covering the Great Commission 2. If you would like to join us live for the Great Great Commission 2 study, you can join us at the Zen Garcia YouTube channel. Uh, Otherwise, the videos will be uploaded to this channel, but they will not be during the live stream. Um, Yep, other than that... Next month, we will be going into the Great Commission 3. So, Gary, are you there, sir? I am. All right. So I'm going to go ahead and move on to the next question. I hope everybody is enjoying having Gary on video. It's been a couple months that we've been trying to get everything figured out, and uh, I feel really happy that everything did get figured out and that we have this awesome layover and we're able to see you. It feels like, you know, we're right here with you. I love the background with all of your your books and the study. It, it looks very very much like I would have imagined anyways. So, we'll go ahead and move on if you're ready. I am ready. All right, the next question comes from Jason and he says, "When it was commanded for Gabriel to cause by some means the giants to destroy one another in battle," Would the animosity and life between the giants carry over into their death?
1: And likely taking the head off, as Goliath would have had his head taken off, uh, as same with uh, Zayab and Orab uh, in with the. Gary, I'm case. sorry
0: to say that you're on mute for this time. So could you please summarize <laughs> what oh. you just said? I'm sorry <laughs> about that.
1: Okay, well, I'll I'll try and uh, improve on my uh, smoothness of the answer now that people round two. Me. How's that? All right. Okay, so in sorry, case people. Everybody. In case people aren't aware of what Jason is talking about, he's referring to Enoch 10, where Gabriel orders the, uh, uh, the giants to have war and kill each other off. and ones that aren't going to be killed off in that war is, is going to uh, are going to be killed by the flood. And they possess what is known as as, as Enoch calls the evil spirit. And uh, this is a spirit that is going to continue to oppress, Um, humankind um, just as the giants did as described in in Enoch 10 and other verses uh, in Enoch uh, while they were still alive and so the spirit isn't permitted to go to sleep and it's not permitted to go to heaven in Enoch and so this is now becomes the evil spirit that it's going to continue to haunt humankind um, not only up to the time of the flood but after the flood as well because they will not be destroyed according to verse 15 in Enoch 10 uh, until the time of the lake of fire so we need to understand who these these beings are and can we make a biblical scriptural argument only from the bible without Enoch to justify that these beings are still here and they're part of the sort of overall uh, hierarchy of the rebellious angels Uh, governing reign until the end time until that's taken away so i think these are the demons uh, that uh, people talk about it's the same demons that uh, are spirituals i know some people think that they're fallen angels but let's just let me make some links here for linking this back to uh, this reprobate spirit this uh, law, a violation against laws of creation um evil spirits out of enoch to what the bible talks about so to run through it fairly quickly we actually get a term in the king james bible uh called devil demons or devil gods and you get that uh, in um 1 Timothy 4, 1, Luke 8, 2, and Matthew 8, 16. So I'm going to link these back to those spirits. But let's go back to Matthew 10:1 and, and Mark three eleven, where it talks about unclean spirits. Okay? And unclean derives from a Greek word, akathartos, which means impure, foul, and demonic. So when it's talking in uh, the Bible about demon spirits... They're literally described as unclean spirits, which are the evil spirits out of uh, Enoch as demonic and impure or foul. Now, if we look at that term uh, seducing spirits, um, then we have another term that is going to link these devil spirits uh, and then that are talked about together, because if you look at first, and I'm just going to read this so that people know what I'm talking about. It says, Now the spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and of devils. Okay? So the devils are going to be this word that is a daemon spirit, and a seducing spirit is uh, one that um, is goes back to the hebrew uh, the greek word planos which means counterfeit or deceiving and roving so this is the the, the beings and the spirits that jesus is talking about uh in matthew 12 43 um, that these unclean spirits when they're not in a man they walk through dry places seeking rest and find none so they're thirsty to have a bo- have a body and just as Enoch talks about forcing these evil spirits into the valleys, whether it's into the earth, in, in through the portals, and how they're thought to come through portals from the other world, netherworld, Tartarus, whatever you want to call it. And when we take the words back to the original meanings, then what we find is, is that this is the same being that Enoch is talking about. These are not devils that we would understand as diabolos which is another word uh where it's just used in the king james version bible that is for satan or the devil and so when you look at the devil as it's applied to satan it's going to say diabolos when it's an unclean spirit it's going to take it basically back to being being a uh a demon so these are the same beings and these are the ones that possess people so they've been haunting people all through history just as Jesus jesus depossessed so many people and inclusive of legion which had a thousand that he dealt with and we also learn about these demons that are going to be part of the end time and leading the kings uh, to war at armageddon so they are here they will be with us until the end time and they are doing harm because they were created with enmity or hate and or hostility towards humankind from the beginning which is why i think in genesis three fifteen. although i understand there's two different ways of interpreting this but i definitely believe it also refers to genesis 6 when the serpent seed is created with enmity Um, against the seed of eve which is what is distilled both physically as a giant and then as a demon afterwards with the giants created in genesis 6 and if you take enmity back to its uh, its meaning it means hostile hate aggressive oppressive this is what the giants and the demons do to humankind and then actually in second enoch it actually talks about these marvelous giants created with enmity which is again we don't get the hebrew word to take that back to see whether it's the same source word as what's used in genesis three fifteen. But typically, it has the same sort of roots. We're just getting it in Greek translations or whatever as the word comes through. But in the Secret Book of Enoch, generally thought to be a part of Second Enoch, uses the word enmity with giants, and I think that's not. I do not think that that is a coincidence. So, to quickly summarize, yes, these are. Uh, the bodiless spirits of the giants, they still have that enmity, they've had it since they've died, and they will continue to harm humankind and try and lead us astray until the end time when they're sent to the lake of fire with the fallen angels.
0: Definitely. One of the only downsides to studying the book of Enoch and the extra-biblical text is that we don't have a concordance, and we can't refer back to the original manuscripts and The original language that they were written in. You know, one of the things that you said that made me think about fasting was how these disembodied spirits are always roaming around because they're so thirsty and they want to fill up a body. And, you know, possessed people just want to devour, right? Devour, devour. And I was thinking when the Messiah said uh, to his disciples, when they were having a problem casting out certain demons, he said the only way to cast these kinds out is through prayer and fasting. Uh, That's very interesting. I think that fasting is definitely a a powerful spiritual tool. All right, so we'll go ahead and move on to the next question. This is from MJ, and they ask, What is the connection between the mystery religions and the standard religions of the world, such as Buddhism and Hinduism? For example, were both of these types of religions created by Cain via the seven sciences with the mystery religions developed for the upper level elites and the standard religions developed and targeting the rest of the world's population? That's quite a big question.
1: It is, and again, will not be a short answer. I guess the short answer is, uh, though, just to lay it out front, and then I'll explain it. Is is essentially yes, and so what we learn through uh, Enoch, and as we, we learn through the secret societies, who uh, also have this parallel account, and other religions and cultures around the world, is that uh, knowledge was developed before. Uh, the flood and then it marries up with uh, the illicit knowledge from the fallen angels and or the uh, gods of the the pantheon and in the gnostic and secret society accounts this knowledge uh, that marries up is first learned in eden with adam taught to god who teaches it to cain who uh, kills abel and it, this knowledge will also pass on to seth as as their uh, line of thought goes but Seth uses it for good Cain uses it for evil teaches it to his son Enoch who separates it into the seven sciences that we now know as the seven liberal arts and uh, out of this and to develop this knowledge they are going to he he splits it up into seven disciplines and out of that seven disciplines comes how you develop it one is through the secret societies and this is where freemasonry and all secret societies take their origin back to is this knowledge and into the mystical religions which is going to be uh, essentially uh, the same type of organization but with with a sort of a different kind of broader focus as opposed to the single focus of the secret societies because they're both part of the same religion this is called Enochian mysticism and this is what is uh, hidden in the 36,525 books uh, stacked on nine vaults underneath the pyramids that are hidden before the flood so that all of this knowledge and religion wouldn't be lost so somehow this religion crosses the flood and uh, in again these accounts uh, they talk about Hermes, which is one of the great patriarchs of the Gnostic religions and Greek religions and uh, uh, some other Mediterranean religions, he finds the uh, the two pillars of Lamech, the two pillars of Enoch, there's different accounts of that, and finds this knowledge under the pyramid. He brings it back to Nimrod, and they start applying this knowledge um, that was married with that illicit knowledge from heaven before the flood that accelerated it, that destroyed the antediluvian world. And so this starts at babel again so this is the post-diluvian side which uh, starts all of the different pantheons around the world so after babel you get a confusion of languages and people leaving and the two main centers of this religion being uh, continued with access to the direct knowledge in sumer which is shinar uh where uh nimrod was and he stays there and he develops that with the, as, as a chaldean or in babylon and then passes it down through the various mesopotamian civilizations that are going to continue with that that we would know as the magi or the wise ones right this is that religion and then you have egypt where hermes according to their accounts travels with Mizraim to egypt and of course that's where the knowledge was all stored so Um, they probably either kept it there and only took what they needed at Babel or took all, you know, copies of that knowledge back to to Egypt. And so these are the two pillars of polytheism after the flood. Now, what happens after Egypt is is that religion is now seminated to all the Mediterranean cultures and has people are extending out from um, the Babel or the Egypt area. And as we get into India and China as we go further east that is coming out of the Mesopotamian route Uh, So out of the Nimrod side and it's carried over uh, With the Aryans who Nephilim or who Nimrod is thought to have intermarried with Um, And these are the same uh, Nephilim Aryans that uh, Would be known as the Kassites or the Mitanni start of the Mitanni dynasty the Marianu so it's the Western branch of these roving Raphaim after the flood that Nimrod is going to intermarry with. And the other part of this group is going to go into um, India and then start Hinduism. And then that gets exported to China with uh, the ancient religion of Taoism and then spreads to Southeast Asia. So what you see is from the two epicenters after Babel is the same pantheon, being taken around the whole world which is why all the gods have sort of similar sort of positions just with different names they have the same type of rituals because it's the same root religion just with vernacular names and maybe some additional vernacular local rituals but it all goes back to the root Enochian religion that destroyed the antediluvian world and was a big part of cause of the flood and which is why Babylon of the end time is the allegory that's rooted in Babel and Enochian mysticism. And the second apocalypse is by fire as opposed to water. And so, again, it really helps to understand prehistory, to understand the allegories of where some of this meaning is coming from. And this is the religion that the seven empires ride on because this was the organizational structure after the flood, just as it was before the flood, where you have a Nephilim or Rephaim king after the flood uh, with the mystical religion that is forced on all people um, and will be again in the end time.
0: All right, I feel like you have probably already answered The next question that also comes from MJ in that thorough answer, she also asked, what is the connection between Eastern religions of the world and the Western religions, and did they both develop from the same source, extending back to the fallen angels? I feel like you just answered that. Do you want to just touch a little more on that?
1: Yeah, so um, uh, definitely yes. And uh, so as I said, I've, I've I've kind of just sort of quickly covered off the relationship between how... Uh, the religion uh, was moving eastward and for people who may be a little bit more aware of some of the ancient more mystical religions um, you have a religion called Mithraism, which was around at the time of jesus and was the time was the uh, dominating one of the dominating religions in of rome at that time and particularly within the military well Mithraism. Uh, comes out of uh, an older religion called zoroastrianism and this is the religion that uh, is uh, i think the babel religion as it's rooted back and the aryan religion that goes into hinduism Uh, and you have the same gods in that mesopotamian religion um, as you have in the hindu religion with uh, identical names except for a little bit of transliteration spelling and and same positions. So I think that's a direct correlation and that's that root religion that shows up after the flood very early on called Zoroastrianism. yeah there's there's a you know a number of different uh, examples that you could use so the answer is i think it's it's a either their polytheist account of the same events or it's a perversion of uh, genesis to uh, make their polytheist religion more um, authentic for their followers Um, so i think it's Likely um, surviving accounts, in my opinion, though, of, of the polytheist version. But again, you could go sort of either way on that. So, not only do they have uh, similar accounting of antediluvian events, right? So, they all have flood stories, they all have these gods giving knowledge, they all have them procreating human beings. Um, Things go bad in the antediluvian world and they create all of these reprobate beings and all these religions. So you're you're telling specific accounts of prehistory. And as we move across, you get a continuation of that. But what's interesting is you get into some of the the Gnostic religions and in terms of the perversion that starts to go go on with it, I like the Gnostic religion because again, that's what we understand that comes out of the secret societies in, in, in the West. And if you look at... Uh, what gnosticism does and i talked about this a little earlier about turning things inside out and upside down so that the evil god becomes the god of the bible uh, which he has a different flavor for in other religions as well um, so they might say he's enlil in the sumerian religion and the mesopotamian religions and anki would be the good god and then you'd have different vernacular names for the same god as you move around I don't think that that's the case because they lower god to being a, an equal of satan by doing that but that's their classic dualism that comes out of polytheism but in gnosticism you have Ialdabaoth uh, boath or Demerish, and he's created by sophia and they call Ialdabaoth boath in the gnostic gospels the god of the bible the god of the jewish people And he's an evil god. So they've turned him into, they've lowered him to the same status as as Satan. uh, And they've also uh, turned him into an evil god. And Boath in in these accounts uh, will create seven archangels. um, Which would match the seven angels and kings uh, that are created by each of the 12 archons in Gnosticism. And so what they're doing is they're putting this other layer of parent gods in and then lowering God to, uh, the, uh, lower level of gods and, uh, creating, uh, a realm that has gone rogue and calling himself, uh, there is none other than him. And so they're creating a carbon copy spin of what is being talked about in, in God's realm, but degrading it. Right and then raising theirs up and they do this because that's what it's always been all about is that if you go and look at isaiah 14 you have uh, satan being talked about as being son of the morning and he is trying to raise his god is, is thrown up to be like God, to have his own realm and to counterfeit everything. And so everything they do is a counterfeit. Just as you have that planos, that counterfeit spirit that was put into the Nephilim. They're trying to create their own gods with a counterfeit spirit. They're going to try and create their own realm away from God and away from God's uh, oversight and rules. And they're going to have their own new age. They're going to have their own Uh, messiah they're going to have their own prophets their own religion uh, and we're going to see a counterfeit armageddon everything's a counterfeit everything is a carbon copy but perverted and if you really have a look at it in that way and if you're going to read gnostic gospels understand that those are the perversions and weigh everything that it says against the bible and look at how they're just turning it upside down and you'll get a good feeling for how the narrative is going, because sometimes it looks like they're talking about uh, the same God that we would have, and he would be a good God, but they're really not. And just like they would take Jesus as accept him as a prophet in Gnosticism, but not as the word of God, not as the son of God. So again, they accept things and carbon and copy it as MJ is talking about, but they pervert it.
0: Definitely. Uh, that, that is really a great study for anyone to go down to do is how all of those ancient religions interconnect because that in itself is kind of proof that it's part of the big picture that you can put together to really come to find out that the Messiah is the truth. Just the fact that they've been trying to knock off the truth. What well, did they
1: do, and, 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 and it reminds me that I, I should have mentioned that, you know, in, in Revelation, it talks about the seven angels around God, just as in Enoch, you have seven major archangels being talked about. And then you have the seven rebellious ones following Satan. There's always seven plus one uh, in polytheism. And so that's a standard number as you get into that in the polytheist uh, account. So whether, let's say, it's the Olympics, Uh, olympic gods and you've got seven uh uh, under the reign of zeus um, uh, and and then and then you have zeus and then you have the additional offspring after that which will bring it up to a larger number but it's that number seven or if you have the seven uh urshua gods or the seven netter gods of egypt plus one above them uh just apply the name of Ta on top of that, you have the eight or back into the Sabeti of Sumeria and An on top again, and you get that same structure again, but it's that rebellious structure, and it's that rebellious structure that uh, some of the Gnostic Gospels will assign to who they call the God of the Bible.
0: Well, wow. All right. Well, thank you for sharing that. That is definitely very interesting. Uh, so we only have a few more questions left before we get into the live questions I'm very excited. This one comes from Jay and they ask, is the worship of the serpent the first religion at Atlantis and how did it carry on after?
1: Very, very, very good question. Um, and I would I would say that uh, the answer is not necessarily at Atlantis um, but before that. Um, so if you look at, um, the creation of atlantis uh and it's a creation from the second tier gods uh the mount of uh, olympus gods right so chronos is the main one uh above that um and the father of zeus and uh poseidon is the brother of zeus or zeus and poseidon is the god of atlantis so the original olympic gods and certainly the ones before just like you have that again in Um, Egypt with the Ogdode gods, which are reptilian gods, these are all serpent gods, right? So depending on when this civilization actually starts to take off with all of this illicit knowledge, you still have cult centers before that and the Enochian mysticism being developed before that because the Nephilim or the heroes aren't created until the days of Noah and as recorded in the book of Enoch, in the sixth generation of Jared, right? And so you have all of these generations before where this imagery and the gods would have been there and understanding Seraphim are fiery serpent angels. And so, and, and a dragon, if you put wings on a serpent, it's a dragon. That's why you have all of these creator gods around the world, whether it's Quetzalcoatl or the dragon, uh, gods of China or wherever plume serpent, uh, all referring to the same base, uh, Seraphim um, type of God that this would have been going on that people would have been worshiping before the demigods are created and you get this exploding knowledge, so I think it goes actually back to before that.
0: Definitely, I uh, definitely have to agree with you on that one. So we'll move on to the next question, and this comes from Matt, and he asked. I've heard that the Illuminati think that if they do a lot of good work, for example, large charitable donations, then they believe it is also okay for them to turn around and do an equivalent amount of evil in the world, since this will balance out. I've not been able to find any research on this, so can you explain if this is accurate?
1: Um, I would say that's... If it was accurate, that would be part of their duality, but uh, I believe not, because they think the evil that they do is actually good. So uh, what is going on, and the best example in terms of understanding that would be the lowest level of the secret societies, which is Freemasonry, understanding the Illuminati are the adept which is a higher group than the third degree York right, which is the old system that most people understand, split into the 33 degrees of Scottish Rite Freemasonry to become an adept. So the lower levels are there to uh, attract new people, new talent, low-lying bloodlines, and to get them into the occult uh, world and, and knowledge. But these lower levels are designed to do good things, right? So freemasonry for the most part at the lower levels is known as eight. you know organizations that do good things just as you get the shriners um which are you know typically not called adept even though they are it's like a 32nd degree so they're like purebloods and very very wealthy um they also have hospitals uh, but as you but again where they do that is is sort of that sort of duplicity that they have whether they fool people even though these are shriners they're not you know recognized as adepts because uh and the difference on that is so that people understand is if you're born into the pure bloods, then you are initiated from childhood and until you're a certain age you can't be called an adept even though you've gone beyond that, you could be in degree seven or degree nine or however high it might go, And so the Rosicrucians would be higher than the Illuminati in that sort of hierarchy. But all of these things are done so that they can behind the curtain of doing these good things with a select few and very powerful and rich and connected do the horrible things that they want to do. It's just a cover. It's just a disguise. So, The good things they do aren't intended to help humankind. They're just there to disguise the evil that they're doing, in my opinion.
0: Sure. Yeah, definitely. That sounds about right to me as well. So this is our last question from the list, and then we'll have about 25 minutes left to get to the live questions and throw you a real pop quiz and get into that speed round. This question comes from Kay, and They ask, what is your view on the Mandela effect? Very interesting.
1: Well, it's a fascinating concept, and I love the idea of time travel and this and that. But um, what I don't think, though, is once I get out of the fascination and the entertainment value of it, uh, I don't buy into the Mandela effect. Uh, And I'm not saying that it's not possible to do it, but I think if you could time travel and make things change – then we'd see a lot more changes, and things would be uh, very mixed up, and there's no way the ordained times could come about. So, I don't think they've cracked that yet. Uh, And if they could, I think we would have people like Azazel out of the abyss, because that would probably be in another dimension. And as you get into multi-dimensions, now you're getting into the time travel aspect and you would have the keys to be able to do that. I don't think they have the keys to do that. And uh, otherwise, uh, there, there's just no way that we, you could have an ordained time uh, because God is letting everything happen through free choice. Um, and so if that was permitted to be able to be done, then they could change it. And they could also do very, very specific prophecies, which they can't seem to do. They might be kind of close in a general area, but they're never 100% accurate. Only the Alpha Omega is above time um, and has that ability. And I don't think that ability has been handed uh, off. But I do know there's a lot of people who believe in the Mandela effect. Um, I'm just not convinced that's the case because that just opens up so many different things that you can't sort of answer properly. Um, But I'm not saying that time travel or being above time, like uh, God and Jesus are above time, um, isn't possible to be able to do that. But I think that's only held by God and Jesus.
0: (laughs) Amen. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Well, Thank you for answering. Uh, We've gotten through 14 questions so far, and now I know that everyone is very excited to get into the live questions. So (laughs) are you ready? Yes. All right. Well, first, I want to give you one more chance to let everyone know where they can go and get your book, The Genesis 6 Conspiracy, and how they could possibly reach out to you if they have any questions.
1: Yes, so best way to reach out to me or to get my book is through my website, Uh, genesis6conspiracy.com that's genesis6 with the number 6 conspiracy.com and on there I have an email to get a hold of me and I have pages there you click on to to buy a book you can get a signed copy there Uh, you can also get a generous excerpt of all 98 chapters on the website and get a good feel for it if you're not familiar with the book and or you can connect over to barnesandnoble.com amazon.com or amazon.ca or to the kindle version uh, also available through retail if it's not on a store that you want to support they can order it in it's distributed through bookmasters and if you want to ask me a question or ask for a document on um, on something then you can get a hold of me through facebook on messenger or on my timeline or at twitter at garywayne63 at garywayne63
0: all right i'm excited it is time Before, I want to just mention we had one comment from a Gary, and they said, hello, Gary. Hello. (laughs) Gary says, hello, Gary. All right, our first live question comes from Shane, and he asks, do you have any insights into sleep paralysis, and do you think that fasting and praying for children and those that are targeted in this very dark ritual season is a set-apart calling for those that are anointed for it?
1: Yeah, those are good questions. So um, I I think if you're anointed to do it, then that should be your commission and you should be doing it. And we should be praying for all people, whether or not we feel it's our anointing or not, uh, for people that are suffering sleep paralysis uh, in in any form. And um, I don't know how many people out there have had it. Uh, I will tell you from a personal experience, it is very frightening. Um, And uh, you literally uh, are unable to move. You're not sure what's going on. You you have this presence around you. Um, I know it's uh, also linked to incubus and succubus. I can't say I've had that experience, but I've had the sleep paralysis. And there's only one way uh, you can make it go away, and you need to pray. You need to understand it's not a dream. And you need to invoke Jesus's name and pray to Jesus and pray to God. And when you do that, and and it's very difficult to focus in that situation with what's going on and to move because you're so concerned with not being able to move. And you know you're not asleep and you have to recognize that. But once you do, it'll be gone like that. Uh, And that's been my experience on it. And I haven't had that experience in, in, in quite some time, but when it was, when it was attacking me, it was very hot and heavy and it happened many, 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 many times. And just when you think it wasn't going to happen anymore, it would come back. Um, So you always have to be on guard for that. So it is uh, certainly something that is, is very real, at least in my experience. And uh, uh, what it is also though, it's very, very, Um, i guess enlightening and and satisfying in the fact that uh, it reinforces your faith because when you're able to have your savior intercede for you and have control as he demonstrated in the new testament over these demons uh, and and they listen to him and anybody who prays through them then it just reinforces your faith Um, but I would caution, I mean, you do have to have strong faith to be able to make it work. So, um, uh, But no matter what, when it comes on, that is how you're going to make it work. Otherwise, it's going to be a very long and painful experience.
0: Definitely. That is something that we could probably do a whole show on, uh, the experiences that we have with sleep paralysis. It's definitely crazy, but I love the way that you said it. it. Really, it will reinforce your faith, even though the experience is terrifying really it's just so i mean you just have fear inside of you you know inside your flesh but then that warmth that comes over you when you call out to the messiah and you you get that healing you get that uh, movement back in your body and all that fear goes away that is an amazing feeling
1: yeah And where you have, for me, where I had to focus is, is because you're actually awake, I'm trying, you would be trying to do the prayer physically, but you can't because you can't move your lips. So you have to focus inwards and do it mentally. um, And then, and then, like I said, just, they're just gone.
0: Yeah, definitely. Amen. All right. Our next question comes from Sam. And I think that you might've spoken about this before. Uh, This could get pretty long, but they said, how did different races come about?
1: Yeah, it's a very, very, very good question because we only get, uh, after the flood, um, eight people surviving, according to the Bible. Um, But again, what we don't know is what were the skin color of the wives and we're not given the lineage either. Uh, there are other accounts that would have them from the Sethian line um, to keep that sort of pure, but that doesn't mean there wasn't some intermixing um, into the Sethian line and that their DNA and everything was, was, was still pure. Um, so there's a possibility that um, some of those races were part for, for, by uh, the four wives on Uh, on the Ark. Uh, So that's a significant possibility. But uh, as we go back to the Eden account, we hit the next stumbling block because there's just Eve and Adam um, created with Adam being created first and then Eve from the rib. So there's no way that there's a race that's created or implied there, yet we have four distinct races that we have today. So how does that happen? Well... My explanation for that is that in Genesis 1, and with the creation of male and female, plural, on day 6, is a completely different account than in the Eden account. And again, I have documents on this I can give it to you, and a chart that lines up the differences. And I don't believe the Bible contradicts itself and so if the bible doesn't contradict itself and it even has a different creation order and one's created in singular and he, in with adam and in in day six they're created in multiple and there's way more differences than just that then to me there has to be two different creation accounts going on and adam was created with a special commission to uh save humanity um As the long-term plan through the birth of the Messiah, so that humans can be raised higher than angels in the future time. So I would say that in day six, you where you have them created in multiples, male and and female, and told to multiply around the earth and spread around the earth, that's when the four races were, were created. And then Adam. Uh, his name goes back to the same as man in, in day six in the Hebrew. So he, we're the same species. I think just a different creation where God breathed his uh, life into him and provided Adam and Adam's descendants a special commission that we still see playing out to this day. So that's how I would get there with the four races.
0: All right. Thank you. Our next question comes from Abtazael. Um, how come you never talk about who the real Jews are?
1: Well, the, the real Jewish people are the people who were uh, dispersed by the Romans in 70 AD. And uh, whether or not all the people of Judah are uh, the ones that we see today Uh, certainly a remnant of the ones are because we know God is going to stand up and fight for them in the end time so we know not all of them are the satanic Jews now I'm not sure quite what the person might be asking there because there's a lot of movements out there that might suggest that Israelites were black and the Jewish people are black or some other sort of line of thought on that Uh, So when I talk about who the Jewish people are, that's the southern kingdom, and that's the remnant that we know that's going to be there. Anything else, I would have to be shown biblically on how you get there. I've looked for it. I've not seen it.
0: Right on. Great answer. Our next question comes from Brad. He says, Gary, in your opinion, have any good angels come down to share wisdom with humankind?
1: Well, how about uh, Gabriel?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: He uh, came down and uh, provided uh, definition and uh, prophecy to Daniel. And he also came down and announced the birth of the Messiah.
0: All right, good answer. <laughs> MJM asks, Gary, you mentioned that Atlantis happened during the war in heaven and that writing's done during this time, such as the Mahabharata. Represent this war between fallen and good angels. Can you provide more details on this?
1: By my book, <laughs> I have a section on that. Right. Um, so, I mean, the the writings of the of the Hindu uh, religion is said to go back six thousand years. Uh, we don't have any records that are would take it back more than two thousand years, but I take them at face value that that is an antediluvian writing that was preserved by the seven sages as they talk about uh, resettling india and other uh, civilizations around the world after the flood as well and these are part of the priest's Uh, that are going on the ark in in the hindu religion um, that survived the flood and they are part of the the brahmin or part of the the seven sages that are taught as the top of the order of priests for the religion that would have had this knowledge and so that those are their records but when you look at those antediluvian accounts they are talking about the same gods just with different names and doing the same types of things and i would say in the uh hindu religions you get some very vivid scriptures in terms of the power that was used uh in these wars that would be what we would understand nuclear but would probably be greater than nuclear and i think we're going to see more of this in the end time particularly after the angels are expelled uh in revelation 12 so I'm not sure whether i totally answered the question but uh that gives you a few sort of quick things in terms of what I'm talking about, in terms of uh, uh, the Vedas, the Rig Vedas, and the uh, other various uh, scriptural and religious documents that come out of Hinduism.
0: All right. I think that you kind of answered this second part of her question. But this, uh, the second part of the question is, were there human beings somewhat similar to modern humanity here on this planet during that ancient war?
1: Yeah, because I think it's was talking about the same period. So this is the same creation as the people of day six, and then uh, the Adamites after that.
0: All right, got it. We'll move on to the next question that comes from Harriet. Do some races come from the hollow earth, specifically the Aryan race?
1: Well, the Aryan race, um, as the secular and polytheist versions go, are the surviving... Uh, Tuatha, Danad, Dedanan, or, t- or the tribe of Danu, and they escaped out of Tartarus or in the earth or out of the dimension or the prison uh, in the Scythia region after the flood. That's how they account for uh, the Aryans arriving. And I think it's probably second incursion, but uh, we also have the descendants of, descendants of Japheth that migrated to that same area. And you have them intermarrying with them as, uh, uh, as they moved into the Scythia area. And you get names like Gog and Magog, which are the offspring of Iapetus, which is one of the gods, which would be Arians and or, or Nephilim. And it's not uncommon for early people after the flood to take on the names of Nephilim and previous gods as they start to backslide back into polytheism after, after the flood. So what I'm saying with all of that is that is all part of, as you connect the dots, part of hollow earth, right? And that there would be cities under the earth or there would be dimensions under the earth or portals under the earth that would have housed people. And that's how they survived the flood. And so when I put things into buckets, I have second incursion, which is my favorite one. And the other one is somehow on an arc, And helped by angels or above the earth or below the earth but again helped by angels would be the the, the, my second favorite bucket and then my first one would be somehow on the ark Um, whether or not it's with through the dna of wives Uh, in some accounts you have a giant hanging on the the ark Uh, all of them were giants some of them were giants Um, but that's my least favorite position so i put it basically put it into three buckets Hollow earth would be part of my second bucket, but my first bucket is second incursion.
0: All right. Thank you for that answer. Our next question comes from Keep Swimming. How do we know for sure that we're walking with the Holy Spirit?
1: Test it. Test it. I mean, I mean you know when, with the feeling with uh, the Holy Spirit is, is there's never any doubt that it's always good. There's never any doubting. It's always trying to point you in the right direction. If there's another spirit there, it probably won't have that consistency because it's trying to lead you away from God or to possess you or to do something harmful to you. Um, but either way, whether it's misleading you with uh, information or misleading you with knowledge or however it's going to deceive you, its intent is to deceive you. But if you're in doubt, test the spirits as we're instructed. Are you, know, are you from God and... Do you believe that uh, Jesus uh, is the word of God who became flesh and went back to him as the resurrected redeemer of humankind? Test them. They'll either give you the correct answer if they're from God or if it's the Holy Spirit. And if they don't, you need to tell them to be gone.
0: Amen. All right, our next question comes from Dragon Ball Angel. I was wondering if you know anything about the connection with LSD psychedelics and famous authors, directors, producers, and do you believe there could be a demonic LSD cult behind famous works?
1: Oh, there's uh – not only demonic uh, knowledge behind it there's also the secret society knowledge behind it so anything that you're dealing with in whether it's the classics whether it's ovid or the greek classics or shakespeare or uh, famous literature that uh, a lot of it is all about the history belief system and genealogies of uh that ancient antediluvian structure i was talking about earlier in the show with the nephilim and the fallen angels and and the, the bodiless spirits of the of the nephilim which are the demon spirits and so that knowledge in the occult and in the occult religions can also be had through taking drugs um, but you but in that world they say you need to be taught otherwise you're going to invite something in that You're not going to want. And so you need to be able to handle this. And in shamanism or in the crazy clown sort of ideology, um, and I I don't say that as a joke because they're both connected in terms of how they're dealing with these demonic spirits and going into trances, whether it's drug-induced or mentally-induced. Through yoga or whatever other methods, as I talk about, uh mentally induced, they are trying to open up that portal to the realm of the demons to come in and give them this extra knowledge and/or power. But typically uh, they don't do it in a symbiotic relationship. That's a possession because it's a demon. If you could also possibly do it as an avatar effect as what Satan did with uh, Judas and possibly with Nakash, where the host isn't suppressed, but a demon is going to suppress the host. So that's why you have a clown that looks like a demon, right? With the pale white face. That's why you have shamans, uh, Painting themselves with that pale light because that's the, the product that's going to take over them and control them and use that body for how they want to do it for torture or for spreading other evil. But they're purposely trying to do that to receive knowledge. And I think a lot of some of the writers who induce some of that do let that ev- evil spirit in to sort of give them a direction, but they get the details the minute details from the secret societies. That's why you have like Disney, who's so big into fairies, as we talked about earlier on. He was a Freemason and a Rosicrucian because it's the Rosicrucians' job to maintain the old religion and to keep the belief system going to create the new religions, which created uh, Gnosticism, Theosophy, and New Age, and uh, which also holds the knowledge to this that they use in a purposeful way to affect literature and entertainment to keep everything visible and shown in plain sight and that most people don't even know what's going on they do and they do it because it's entertaining they're experts at what they're doing you know i look at uh, tolkien and lewis i mean these were part of an inkling society at oxford which is a Rosicrucian society where they get their knowledge from. And this was a society designed to create these types of literature that I'm talking about. And yet they don't have a record as being Freemasons. Now the lodges in England don't release those records, but you don't get to be part of Rosicrucian unless you're a pure blood or are uh, significantly talented in a way but these are young writers so the only way you'd be allowed in as a Rosicrucian is to be an adept so the only way you can be an adept without being um, uh, going through all the different steps and uh, degrees is is to be initiated from childhood to be that adept degree but not with that title that you would be at at a young age as being in university as Tolkien and Lewis were and then put into the Rosicrucian Inkling Society to be given this knowledge to write about all of these things. So hopefully I explained that well enough.
0: Definitely. Well we have four minutes left. I think we might be able to get through one more question and it's pretty short. Keep Swimming says or asks, is there a difference between Righteous and holy
1: Yeah, you know, I think I think they're part of the same coin Um, I Don't think you can be holy without being righteous and uh, I don't think you can be 100% righteous without being holy Now if you wanted to talk about degrees, that's a whole different ballgame But those to me are absolute terms
0: Yeah, I definitely agree with you. All right, well, maybe we can get through one more. James asks, is Satan just one individual, or is he a collection of the chief rebel angels?
1: Yeah, so in um, Enoch, it talks about Satans as plural and Satan as an individual. And the Satans as the plural are the lower-level angelic realm that are basically his leaders. Um, But I think Satan is one individual. He is uh, the one that's talked about in Isaiah 14. Uh, even though you've got uh, a king that's going on there, that's a dual prophecy. Uh, Lucifer is actually comes out of the Hebrew word Hael, H E Y L E L, and uh, he is the one that falls from heaven. And H E L E L is the figurative allegory. Version of Hail for the King of Babylon, or you know Lucifer's religions or the Pantheon's religions, you have the same thing that's going on in Ezekiel twenty-eight, the same type of dual prophecy, and in both accounts you don't have humans that are being around the throne of God. And in Ezekiel uh, twenty-eight, you've got this individual classified as a cherubim, who walks amongst the fiery stones while the cherubim fan the throne they don't walk in the fiery stones, that's the seraphim. Now, Satan is described as as a cherubim there, but also as a seraphim as a dragon and a serpent in Revelation 12. So I think he's both. That's how significant he was. And in Ezekiel 28, he also is cast out of heaven. So he also falls. And I go back to my most primary rule of Scripture is wherever possible, go back to what Jesus said on a subject. And in Luke uh, 10, as I recall, 10, 18, uh, and 19, he talks about seeing uh, Satan fall from heaven. Uh, And then he goes on and talks about the serpent aspect, right? Giving power over serpents. And I think you need to read both of those in context to what Jesus is talking about. And so he unites Satan as being the one who fell from heaven in Ezekiel and in Isaiah. So one individual.
0: Right on. All right. Well, thank you very much for answering all of these questions. We've gotten through so many. We got through 14 from our predetermined list, and then we got through so many of the live questions. So on behalf of everyone that's listening in, uh, Gary, we really appreciate having you here. We, we're just so thankful to the Most High that he's blessed us with you and you know, anointed you for your position to be able to share these answers with everyone. So, everyone, we really appreciate you joining us tonight, and I hope that you've enjoyed this. Please like and share this video. It will help you know, d- disseminate the truth that's been shared tonight with as many people as possible. And also, if you have any questions that weren't able to be answered tonight, please email us at sacredwordpublishingllc at gmail.com, and we'll put it on the list for hopefully a next episode, and we'll let you know. Uh, in a responding email exactly when your question will be answered. So this is a monthly Ask Me Anything series, so we will be back again at the beginning of next month for another episode with Gary Wayne. Gary, would you like to close us out in prayer?
1: Sure. Father in heaven, we thank you for permitting and allowing and enabling so many people to get together and dig deep into your word. Uh pray that people have been blessed by what we have had to say with the answers and the questions tonight. I think the questions were so terrific tonight that people will take this knowledge and think about it and dig deeper into scripture and to pass information on as they do dig deeper into scripture so that people will not be deceived in the end time. Uh, I think that uh, and we pray that this will happen because the spurious forces will take scripture and they will use scripture to deceive people and the only defense is to put on the armor of God to dig deeper and not to be deceived so that when even the elect are deceived in the end time that more and more people will have heard shows like this conversations like this and be prepared and to help others in the end time so we ask you to bless everybody who Uh, was part of the show tonight, and to help them and encourage them to research more and to pass the information on. We pray this in the name of our Redeemer, the Word Jesus, who sits at your right-hand side and testifies to you for us and for all of the saints, and also in the Holy Spirit and in your great and holy name. Amen.
0: Amen. All right, we really appreciate it, Gary, and we appreciate everyone that joined us. We'll see you next time. Thank you. All right, God bless.